interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Welcome to Interrupted, the podcast of the West Star Institute, which is dedicated to advancing scholarship on the history and evolution of Christianity while exploring issues that matter to society and culture. Interrupting, enriching, and disturbing conventional religious discourse in the public square. Interrupted brings the expertise of Western scholars, guests, and practitioners to bear on important issues in the world today. Hi, I'm Jordan Miller, and I'm one of the co-hosts of Interrupted. This episode is part of our Spotlight series, where we focus on introducing a specific figure, idea, or term. This installment is a description of liberal Protestantism by Sarah Maurice Brubaker, a Westar scholar and associate professor of theology at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Westar's Seminar on God and the Human Future, sometimes called the God Seminar, is a scholarly collaboration that began in 2013. Soon after founding, the God Seminar scholars agreed that, quote, the subject matter of theology is not God conceived as a supreme being or highest entity. This set the God Seminar on a post-theistic track. So for the first few years, God Seminar scholars investigated and debated about the varieties of post-theism, including radical theology, anatheism, pantheism, and panentheism, religious naturalism, and some decolonial theologies, too. Since 2018, the God Seminar has pivoted toward discussing the human future part of its title. Very quickly, the God Seminar scholars concluded that any discussion of the future would have to grapple with the legacies of European colonial concepts, especially those stemming from what Walter Mignolo has called modernity coloniality, since European modernity came into existence through the colonial project, which in turn has been driven in part by Christian theology itself. There's a lot to unpack here, and we'll be taking on some of this in future episodes, so please stay tuned for those. All of this is to say that the God Seminar voted to affirm a series of four resolutions in November of 2019. This is their exact wording. One, No way of thinking about the future can be responsible without attending to what systems that benefit white people enable and incapacitate. Two, liberal Protestantism reinforces systems that benefit white people at the expense of others. Three, we commit ourselves to practices that situate and decenter those modes through which systems that benefit white people are reinforced. And four, first among these practices is to actively attend to our material conditions, relationships, and communities that inform the work of this seminar. This episode of Interrupted is Sarah Maurice Brubaker's explanation of what liberal Protestantism is, some of its history and development, what it has to do with whiteness and coloniality, and why it matters to people doing critical theological work today. Have a look at the show notes where we'll index some of the main points that appear in this episode so you can jump around a little bit and find what you're looking for a bit quicker if you'd like. We start with a conversation between me, Interrupted's co-host Matthew Baker, and Sarah before moving into Sarah's presentation. All right, here it is, Interrupted's Spotlight on Liberal Protestantism. Mm -hmm. 
this is Matt. I'm here with Jordan Miller, and today we are joined by Sarah Morris Brubaker. Did I get it right? Maurice. Jordan. Wait, that's okay. <laughs> I asked him before you came on how to say it, and he's like, I think it's Morris. But I also know that I mean, everybody always gets it wrong, and so I always second guess myself. Damn I know. It. It's, that's fine. That's hysterical. Okay, well, Sarah is professor of theology at Phillips Theological Seminary and author of at least one book that I know of. You write for Religion Dispatches and most importantly, a very distinguished Westar scholar. So uh, yeah, thanks for hanging out with us. This is great. Oh, How are you doing? Thank you. So was there anything I missed in that brief introduction or left out? What else is important for us to know about you? Can you just kind of oh, give us a, an introduction? Yeah. This is where I would put something sort of funny and quirky, right? I once played a 12-year-old boy in a nationally broadcast, well, syndicated radio drama for truckers. That was one of my two professional acting roles. <laughs> and the other one, the other one was uh, Missouri Synod Lutheran confirmation class videos. And they happened at the same time. So was, I thought, wow, I'm really going places. And then not so much as it turned out, but those two acting jobs were fun and they were an adventure. One yeah. of my favorite things about Sarah is that she has an uncanny ability to write satirical lyrics to show tunes. Oh, I love that. She's really <laughs> maybe we can get a Maybe we can get a taste of that if we have time later. Sure. <laughs> All right. So how did you first get involved with the West Star Institute? And can you say something about the work that you've been doing there, the kinds of questions that are being asked, the kinds of conversations that you're a part of and so on? Yeah, um, I was lucky at Phillips to join as a young colleague. Um, I was still ABD and two of my senior colleagues, uh, Joe Bessler, well, no, three actually, Joe Bessler, in theology, and then Dennis Smith and Brandon Scott in Bible and New Testament had all been involved in Westar. And um, when the God Seminar was starting, Joe had been looped in, and he connected me uh, with David Galston. And I thought, this sounds really great. I'd love to be part of this. I'm surprised that Westar's involving theologians and doing theology stuff, because um, at that point, it was so much biblical studies and history, but it was delightful. And the God Seminar has been one of the most fruitful scholarly communities that I've ever been a part of. I uh, didn't come in with as much background in radical theology as, you know, my esteemed colleague Jordan um, <laughs> and some others. So I really uh, enjoyed learning about that. And then with the Christ Seminar starting, excited to be part of that as well. What I love about Westar is that you get to know people in other seminars as well as your own. And so I have found that my own research and writing has been deepened, not just by the people in the God Seminar, but also by what I've learned sort of eavesdropping in on and learning about the work of the Christianity Seminar, for instance. Um, that's been huge. So it's such a wonderful opportunity for just kind of getting ideas going and getting big questions on the table and not having to say, I need to publish, so I'll be the world's leading expert on the, the silent schwa in the 
third epistle of Theodoret of Wolverhampton, you know, but you can actually surface the, the really big questions. Um, and since it's meant to be public facing, you also not only are allowed to, but have to identify, you know, why this matters other than idle interest to people who've made peculiar life choices. <laughs> I mean, a- another piece of your role in Westar, uh, in addition to the scholarship, is the public interfacing bit. Oh, um, I do like that, yes. <laughs> and, and you've done quite a few of the on-the-road events over the years and yeah. uh, are kind of one of our go-to folks in the God Seminar for explaining some of our um, heavily terminology-laden conversations for yes. a more Well, and as long as we're trading compliments, um, you're very good at that as well. I remember that you had to do so in a, a difficult situation once. <laughs> there have been a Santa few of those, yeah. I learned from you how to do that effectively. You know? Well, thanks. Um, but that's part of how we ended up getting yeah. you on to do this liberal Protestantism talk. We have a lot of liberal Protestants in the Westar audience, and we thought it might make sense to try to bring them along on a rather controversial topic. Yeah. And you asked earlier, Matt, about things not that might go in the bio, and I completely forgot to mention that All right. I, I was the co-chair for the Liberal Theologies Program unit of the AAR for a number of years. Oh, very nice. Um, so that's actually kind of where I drew from mm-hmm. in putting together that talk to some degree. Okay. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of that, Jordan. <laughs> No, that's good. I think that like segues really nicely into what we're going to do now. We're going to try to set the table, I guess, for for the talk that you gave on the topic of liberal Protestantism. Um, but before we go there, I think Jordan, you might be able to help us out here because you've been with Westar a while, and I think you could maybe explain very briefly something about the voting system. It is referenced in the beginning of your talk. It sort of like gets the whole thing going. So, can you explain what that's all about? Yeah, so one of the one of the quirky things about Westar is that the scholars traditionally will meet um, more or less twice a year and deliver scholarly papers on some kind of controversial topic. Uh, and typically, they'll make a strong claim about that controversy. And the scholars deliberate the merits of the paper, they kind of go over the evidence, but they frame it in terms of the collaborative work that the seminar has been doing for however long. And at the end of those uh, kind of almost instantaneous peer review sessions, is kind of how you can think of them, there's often a vote on some facet of those controversies. And, uh, you know, sometimes it might be a matter of historical fact, you know, a thing happened or it didn't happen. Sometimes it's uh, a more kind of deontological claim. Uh, some, you know, it might be moral in character or, or theologically substantive in character. It could vary widely. But the God Seminar over the last couple of years has been doing a lot of work uh, in the vein of decoloniality and anti-racism in, in various forms. And so uh, we had a meeting at which we were we were dealing with implicit racism within white liberal Protestantism. And so we had a series of votes that came out of that meeting specifically about liberal Protestantism. And we basically said liberal Protestantism, while we're indebted to it, and while you know there are some things that have come out of it that have been really influential on us as a seminar, 
there's some inherent racism going on here that we need to call out and deal with. Uh, and so, you know, th there were a handful of votes that more or less combined to say something to that effect. Um, but as a result, again, since much of our membership is liberal and Protestant, we felt the need to then circle back with a follow-up conversation and explain to them why we did that. That's good. That gets at what I want to ask Sarah, you know, it's just like, what are you addressing in this talk? Like who or what are you responding to? Is there a larger conversation kind of going on in the background here? So, I mean, Jordan already talked about that a little bit, but is there anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I think one trap that liberal Protestantism can fall into is seeing everything else as contextual. So liberal Protestants are great at saying the scriptures have to be read in context. They came from a particular time in history and a particular culture. These theological arguments are historically and culturally contextualized and they have to be understood as such. But <laughs> when it comes to liberal Protestantism, sometimes fail to see that that phenomenon too is conditioned by a particular time in history, particular historical developments, a particular culture, whiteness, class privilege, education level. And so if you don't see that about the point of view you're espousing or about the kind of cultural place you inhabit, then what ends up getting communicated and believed is everybody else's worldviews were contextual, but lucky for you all, <laughs> here we are <laughs> with our um, just self-evidently correct way of viewing things. And you're welcome. And that's what I wanted to kind of pick at, to show the particular proclivities and virtues even, and hangups of yeah. liberal Protestantism to be the result of a process. It didn't just descend from on high, you know, on angel wings as a mighty fortress as our God played in the background. Yeah, <laughs> nice image. That's where I, think I, I stole like... that from David Steinmetz of blessed memory, but. Okay, that's a nice tribute. Um, <laughs> one of the things I took away from the uh, sort of historical rendering you gave is how deeply related liberal Protestantism is with the legacy of colonialism. Yes. And that's that's one reason why I think it's important to just keep telling that story, even though maybe we've heard it many times or in different ways, because I think it really kind of makes the necessity of some kind of decolonial project more obvious for people. Um, yeah. And then like, I can't help but wonder if that is not connected to what I am sensing is this growing interest in indigenous thought and the emergence of, you know, the new anthropology and things like that. Yes. Uh, I know, I know the God seminar works in some of those areas. I don't know. I'm just wondering if you had any thoughts on any of that. I think that's exactly right. Of course, to talk about indigenous thought, we're recording this on July 1st when yesterday, yet another, um, yet another site of, of mass graves at boarding school was found. And I haven't actually checked the headlines today uh, to see if any more have. And I live, as you noted, in Oklahoma where uh, there are just scores of tribes that have their headquarters, you know, within 50 mile radius of Tulsa. So I think that in some ways the God Seminars move in that direction was prescient, but also of course overdue. I mean, 
it's never you're never ahead of the game if you're addressing a historic injustice but i'm really at the same time i'm i'm glad i'm glad that it didn't take yet more disclosures of so many so many deaths and so many bodies to sort of make the god seminar go oh i say maybe we should take a look at indigenous things i think that's um, a testament to the work of some of the scholars um, who've been engaging those questions from the very beginning and i'm certainly in their debt i think it makes the god seminar stronger and it's a gift to westar and all of westar's constituencies so contribution today is directed mainly to associates who I believe I can see 49 of in the list of attendees. In particular, I want to focus on the vote that we took that says liberal Protestantism reinforces systems that benefit white people at the expense of others. By way of a proviso, I was not actually present for that vote, but I am myself firmly in the tradition of liberal Protestantism. I grew up United Church of Christ in Ferguson, actually. And I share those criticisms, but I share them as someone firmly rooted in that tradition. And I form those criticisms using tools that I got from that tradition. So I was very glad to hear about the vote. And I've given some thought to how I might best unpack that particular critique, particularly for associates who may not have come across that critique before, or worse yet, we might be misunderstanding each other. So what I want to guard against is any critique of liberal Protestantism that you might hear as liberalism. So I want to try and unpack what all is in this concept of liberal Protestantism, where it comes from, and why this is important, particularly because, again, coming from this tradition, when I imagine having an interlocutor about this particular resolution, I, I imagine very good people, very justice-minded people, people who live with integrity and try to practice their faith with integrity, saying to me something like, how dare you? We, liberal Protestantisms, I don't know if you've noticed, Sarah, but we are not the ones who fought for segregated schools. We're not the ones whose denominations are denouncing Black Lives Matter. In fact, many of our denominations are endorsing Black Lives Matter and played supporting roles in the civil rights movement. We're not the people who refuse to ordain women. We're not the people who demonize and inflict trauma on LGBTQ folks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my fictional interlocutor says to me, how dare you? And moreover, why is this the time to bring this critique? I don't know if you've noticed, but the stakes are pretty high. So why on earth would you highlight the imperfections of, of a tradition that has fought for justice in some ways, okay? So that's the charge I'm trying to address. I think it's an important one. But the fact that we're even having this conversation, I hope, shows you, associates, how important it is to the God Seminar that you be brought along on this conversation and that you be fully invited in and that we don't just use our own intra-theologian arcane language and leave you scratching your heads and wonder why we're going on about this. That's the test I set myself. I think the best way to do it is I'll try to talk about what we mean by liberal Protestantism. And I'll do this in two parts. First, I'll talk about kind of the historical lead up to what we call liberal Protestantism. 
And then second, I'll talk about some theological habits that in general, liberal Protestantism has inherited from its many distinct and sometimes mutually contradictory critical intellectual inheritances. And specifically, I'll just outline them right now, but I'll come back to this. First, the idea that there is something called religion. Second, a generally favorable view towards universal reason and the autonomy of the individual. Third, a belief in the uniqueness, specialness, and value of the interior self, which is itself kind of modern innovation. But the idea that there's this special space inside me that's unique and where my authenticity lives, my feelings live, and that that's valuable and that's creative and that that really needs to be attended to by religion. Fourth, a belief that progress, meaning greater knowledge, better social improvements, more education, will improve humanity so that the future stands to be better than the past and that this will involve a kind of gradual shedding of superstitions of magical thinking that have characterized human society before the advent of modernity. And finally, a generally positive view towards modern university scholarship and modern academic scholarship. Now, you notice I've said nothing really about the contested issues in the magisterial reformation. I confess I am assuming that people are at least somewhat up to speed on those. Luther Calvin, Stingley, and then the English Reformation. And I'm de-emphasizing those because they take up so much room in the discussion of what Protestantism is that I don't want to miss these other pieces. To return to something of the lead up to liberal Protestantism. So one important piece is, of course, the scientific revolution, 1540-ish to 1690-ish. And what's interesting about this time is a view of the world that had held sway for centuries was suddenly upended. So you had an understanding of why things in the world work the way they do. Not talking about God yet, we're talking about how things fall off of groups and why the stars look like that, what land masses there are in the world, pretty basic stuff. And they draw upon a legacy from Aristotle by way of, of Ptolemy that during this time ceased to be believable. And, and that's for two reasons. One is because the actual claims made by that form of science of natural observation were contradicted as people got better and better tools for observation. So Galileo with his telescope looks up and sees, oh, there's mountains and valleys on the moon. I guess that means the celestial bodies aren't made out of a quintessence, out of ether. But also the kind of explanatory power that held sway ceased to really feel as explanatory. So with an Aristotelian framework, you might say there's four elements in the universe, earth, air, fire, and water. Earth goes downward, it has a downward motion because it strives to go down. and Fire has an upward motion because it strives to go up and air has an upward, right? During this time, that ceased to feel very explanatory. Indeed, it felt like just redescribing the phenomenon. Why did you go to sleep, Sarah? Because I was sleepy. I figured that at the point where you went to sleep, but I'm asking for an explanation of why. Saying that air 
goes up because it wants to. It doesn't actually tell you why air goes up. It just re-describes the phenomenon. Meanwhile, explorers were bringing back tales of land masses that had never been accounted for in the Mapa Mundi, the, the map of all of the earth that had been committed to paper by a student of Augustine's 800 years earlier. So all of these old forms of authoritative knowledge were being contradicted by the available observational tools and direct experience of the people at that time. Again, just setting the stage, but that's one important piece to consider because it'll be important later for how people think about what it means to treat religion as a subject of scientific study. A second historical stream is the post-Reformation period and the early modern uh, political theory that comes from it. The Reformation, we're covering similar ground here from different directions, but Reformation 1517, 1648-ish, the wars of religion, the fighting over religion left people exhausted and it was vicious. And by the time the, the peace of 1648 was arrived at, it was a piece of just utter exhaustion. Nobody's vision of proper ecclesiology or sacramental practice won out, but it was just, they could not go on fighting. So in the German speaking areas, the agreement was, you'll have the religion of the prince of the place you live. So political theory at that time reflected the sense of exhaustion and the sense that religion was a tool of, was a force for violence. One idea that came about is religion should not be, or Christianity should not be the kind of thing that organizes the polis, the kind of common space where we all move about and interact with each other. In particular, specific doctrinal claims shouldn't do that. Um, and so even if everybody in your, your place that you lived was, I don't know, United Methodist, according to some political theorists of this time, that would not make that a United Methodist republic any more than the fact that everyone wore hats would make it a hat republic. It was just, it didn't have to do with that. It was something else. Now, the way that something else is articulated depends on who you talk to, and I'm painting in very broad strokes here. Um, but I mention this because we see the seeds here of the modern nation state with Locke on toleration. It's this early notion of the modern nation state, but it really starts to take shape during this time and is seen as a way of not having to fight these like stupid, bloody conflicts over theological points that are not resolvable according to any kind of broad appeal. Again, painting in broad strokes, but we must move on. Um, and then of course there's enlightenment rationalism and universalism. So now we're a bit later. 1700s mid to past of the 19th. And here, if read your font or your Copleston, you get the idea of the Enlightenment subject who is not pulled this way and that by outside commitments, but makes decisions based on reason because reason works the same way for everybody. So a Christian doesn't do a math problem and get a different result than if a Jewish person does that math problem. Reason, at least, we can count on to work all the time and to not put us at odds with each other because of our pre-enlightenment, unenlightened, superstitious commitments that we just adhere to because they're there and not because we've evaluated them in the light of reason. Again, they're very broad strokes. 
Also during this time, you can probably hear these echoes of progress, this idea that things are getting better and better, the casting of the past as superstitious and violent, and that these new ideas will be what will enable us to know more and learn more and more about the world, find a place of common ground, and eventually realize some great new future. It gets articulated differently depending on the thinker, but the impulse, the movement of progress is very much Romanticism is an interesting little clapback, this emphasis on rationalism. So this is late 18th, 19th centuries-ish. It had, in general, less of a connection to religious communities and was more the province of authors and artists, writers, but it was hugely culturally influential. And romanticism stressed creativity and not reason as that which makes us truly and deeply human. Spontaneity, emotion, connection with the, the sublimity of nature, the sublime. And it's tempting if you don't spend a lot of time with these time periods to hear that as though it happened after modern psychology. But remember that it didn't. <laughs> this is not people having a really good therapy session that makes them feel better. This is an anthropology of what makes human beings special. It's that, that interiority, that creative spark, and the emotional life. So that is some streams that are going into this introduction to liberal Protestantism. Now, the, the things I mentioned before as the characteristics that I wanted to draw particular attention to, begin with this idea that there is a thing called religion. In the medieval world, if you had said you were religious, that would mean that you were a monk or a nun. But there wasn't this idea that there are these religions of which Christianity, Judaism, Islam, etc., 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 are particular examples. This is a thing that comes out of all of the movements we just discussed. It is tied up with the Western colonial project. So when European Christians were trying to figure out what to do with Christianity and were trying to show that it wasn't antithetical to reason if you ignore the miracles or if you look at it as primarily being about making good people, or if you say the loaves and the fishes was about Jesus inspiring people to share and just evacuating it of any supernatural content. Okay, so the people that were doing that then began to say, okay, We've looked at this essence of Christianity, but isn't there also an essence of religion? So they would see places where European colonial projects would go there and encounter people that to them seemed to be doing things that were supernatural, superstitious, magical, what they were trying to leave behind. And that started to be folded into this category called religion. Defenders and critics of this thing called religion were both in contentious debate with each other at this time, but it enabled the location of something called religious studies in the university system. So universities underwent tremendous reforms in Prussia. Oh, I can really get into the weeds here because it's really interesting, but I can't let myself do that. Okay. But modern universities were in different ways in different countries, having some external pressure put on them to treat religion 
as an academic discipline that you would study scientifically. And that was made possible by the invention of this thing called religion. And that's why we have religious studies departments today. When we're talking about liberal Protestantism, we are talking about a tradition that draws upon everything I've just covered incredibly quickly and with gross generalization. And it's important to recognize that not all of these sensibilities, these habits of thought necessarily agree with each other. So if liberal Protestantism is generally favorable towards the idea of universal reason and towards the idea of religious studies, it's important to note that stream comes from a slightly different conversation than the one that talks about the depth of the inner self and the unique spark of creativity. Those are in some ways at odds, and yet they're both very much in play in liberal Protestantism today. Why on earth, given all these nice things, would the mean old God seminar single out <laughs> liberal Protestantism for critique? First of all, it's important to notice, looking at all of this history, that being self-reflective and self-critical is, in fact, a habit of thought that, in some ways, exemplifies the best of liberal Protestantism. So that's one thing. But in terms of the specific critique of liberal Protestantism reinforcing systems that benefit white people at the expense of others, let me just walk you through it very quickly. I expect that everyone involved with Westar knows the criticisms that come out of that unruly and often contradictory reality that's given the misleadingly straightforward title of the religious right or the Christian right. Those criticisms often boil down to the B-I-B-L-E is a rule book and everything it says is literally historically true. And if Jesus is Lord of everything, including wedding cakes I sell at my store, right? But the criticisms that come from a bit further left are not those criticisms. The criticisms of liberal Protestantism that we are dealing with come from a very different place. These criticisms notice, for example, how deeply colonialism is implicated in the construction of religion as that which when Europeans went someplace, they thought, look what they did, but we're glad to be moving away from. Colonialism is implicated in the construction of progress, at least enlightenment notions thereof, of superstition. And as Jordan really laid out nicely in the piece that you've read for today, notions of the future and the time, the kind of temporality that is needed to make sense. Also, the idea of the rational enlightenment individual, the man of reason, provides cover for the supposedly autonomous, enlightened individuals who are governed solely by reason to ignore ways in which their own deployment of their intellectual faculties might be corrupted by their own privilege because there is disincentive to consider that maybe my own lofty philosophical ponderings might reflect a cognitive distortion that I cannot actually myself see and must rely on other people to correct in me, particularly if those other people, those other voices, are the very people I have cast in the role, superstitious, behind the times, prone to magical thinking. One way we see this today is in the way that 
Fowler's stages of faith is often used in religious education conversations in liberal Protestant churches. So there's five stages of faith. If you're a one or a two, like probably immature and superstitious, but if you're a five, you might be, you might be Unitarian. You might be UCC. You're very enlightened and you, you don't go in for that superstition stuff. I'm not saying that's what Fowler says, but I guarantee you, because I have been in these circles and I've heard his name invoked, that is how he is used. So this idea that like we educated people have progressed beyond all that. That is uncritical, privileged assumption that the enlightenment ideal of the man of reason is inadequate to reflect critically upon Moreover, universal reason turns out not to actually be all that universal. It is itself a cultural artifact from a particular region of the globe, a particular fan of centuries, and a particular social class or social classes. One, is Karen still here? I think she, I just, we did a, a Jesus seminar on the road together and Karen said something that was so brilliant, I had to write it down. Kant never left the town he was born in. Why don't we call his philosophy, small town Prussian philosophy. We don't, but everyone who is not from that particular, everyone who doesn't, so to speak, look the part. So you're a woman or you're a person of color or you're not cisgender. Anyone who is not that, their philosophy or their theology is like some sort of special interest identity philosophy or theology, whereas Kant was just everybody needs to know him. That's not a special interest at all. That's canon. So that's one additional criticism. Romanticism is interesting because what ends up happening, and again, this is, this is like such a brief sketch, is that capitalism proves to be very good at manipulating my sense of my own specialness. So people who want to sell me something very cleverly manipulate me into feeling like my unique, precious interior specialness of Sarah, that golden crucible of Sarah that lives inside me, that will be most fully realized if I get just the right high-end shade of taupe paint for my bedroom. And the critiques of that or the critical purchase on that needs to come from outside of the idea of what makes me special because the market the people who want to sell me token will always be there saying you know what would really make you special sarah if you had just the right wall paint or in these uncertain times sarah we here at prudential we care about you but that's a manipulation and so to the extent that a kind of starry-eyed view of my interior feelings, whatever my feelings tell me to do should certainly be what I do, informs my view of the world. I'm not going to be well poised to be critical of that. Now, that was a lot. And again, I just want to say to my scholars who are thinking she didn't draw attention to this important distinction or this important distinction or this important distinction, you're right, I didn't. But I was trying to give a very quick overview for anyone whom we might leave behind without unpacking what exactly is the intellectual, philosophical, and theological inheritance of liberal Protestantism 
such that it's available to be critiqued with some of the very practices of, of self-reflection and critical thinking that liberal Protestantism at its best has embraced. And so I, I would just say at the close of this, the attention to our material conditions in West Star would, that's the pivot that to me is really interesting, that if we can take that self-awareness and actually look at our material practices as a scholarly community, I think that would be really wonderful. And that's why for me, it's so important not to lose, not to lose any valuable dialogue partners along the way. In there, you you kind of get going by responding to an imaginary interlocutor who is giving voice to these questions and concerns that you then go on to respond to. And the questions you're asking there seem like very reasonable questions that, you know, I, I can imagine someone having in response to the vote on liberal Protestantism that we've talked about for some of the reasons that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, are those in fact real questions and concerns that have kind of come your way or you've heard voiced or is this kind of like you just want to get ahead of things and take preventative measures or something like that? I need a refresher on exactly what the questions are. <laughs> I remember the I remember setting it up with that conceit, but I'm trying to remember what they actually It was like were. the person was saying, how dare you, bad God seminar, Yes. Come, at, come at my liberal Protestantism because we're not the racists here. Yes, es yes, essentially. yes, yes, right. Um, I have. <laughs> isn't reason a good thing? Right? Yeah. Isn't mm -hmm, scientific mm -hmm. method a good thing? Isn't liberalism's um, standing on the side of civil rights in the 50s and 60s a good thing? Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yes. Um, and yes, I have heard those questions uh, before sometimes implied, sometimes said straight out. And I can, um, I can appreciate where they're coming from because it does seem pretty stark right now <laughs> that um, on the one hand, there's a group, um, a sizable group in the United States that seems to be unconcerned with facts, um, with any kind of verifiable. Reality. I don't know if you heard this, but there are no facts. There are only interpretations. I have heard that as well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly my dad, is, my dad is a Nietzschean, you know, it's like, what happened right. to this world? <laughs> right. And I'm thinking too of a book by Mary Poovey and the invention of the modern fact and how the fact became the unit of modern knowledge. And I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't said fact, but <laughs> Or perhaps I should say, I'm un not unconcerned with fact, but actively invested in saying whatever the heck it feels good to say, whether or not that's responsible in any way, shape, or form. Um, so just leave fact aside. Um, but I'm going to blurt what it feels good to blurt because it feels good to blurt it. And if that ends up hurting people, eh, you know, so. I think um, people can have different reasons for being horrified at that and can articulate those reasons differently. And particularly if somebody came out of, as so many of my students,
students have over the years have come out of very, very fundamentalist or very like spiritually abusive backgrounds. I mean, goodness, you know, the, the, the discovery that like historical criticism exists or that, that Feuerbach had some good points. Like that is just, it's literally life-saving that the scientific method, you know, I mean, you look at, at the pandemic, you look at COVID and you say, which served us better? American white Christianity or science? Um, I'm not going to get fussy at somebody who looks at those two possible answers and says, I think science served us better ultimately than American white Christianity. So I, I set up that talk with those questions because I think they're worth taking seriously and they aren't, aren't caricatures. And at the same time, I really want liberal Protestantism to see itself as historically conditioned. In some ways that would represent it being, you know, kind of faithful to its own projects by seeing itself as historically conditioned in ways that, uh, you know, I think the discipline of anthropology has been, it came out of a very, I mean, it came out of the colonial project. That's where it came out of. And it has used its best insights to decolonize itself. And it's not, I mean, it's still ongoing, hasn't been done perfectly. There's lots left to do, but um, it was the logic of the best parts of that project that then were used to change the nature of the project. And I'd love to see liberal Protestantism do that. A duck just landed outside the window. It's very exciting. Sorry. <laughs> Your arc is growing. Squirrel. It is. One of the things that I appreciated about the talk, I had to listen to it a bunch of times because I was editing it. Oh, yeah. I, I oh, bless started... you. That's, that sounds boring. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, it's a labor of love. But one of the things that I started to notice and appreciate was your, you know, you have this very like understated wry humor that- <laughs> I really, I really like, um, but in that big story that you're telling, one of the other things I appreciated that I noticed was the editing. There were things in there that you could have said, but left out. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, in fact, at different points, you, there are moments where you point out some of those things and say, we're not going to go there today or whatever, yeah. but we have more time now. Uh, were there things that you maybe wanted to include and didn't, or are there other things that would maybe help fill out our understanding of of that history and the larger point you're getting towards about Mm. the legacy and inheritance of liberal Protestantism? Mm -hmm. Since I recorded that talk, um, I've now taught through the book, What's Faith Got to Do With It by Kelly Brown Douglas a few times in my intro theology class. And I think it might be nice had I had more time or going back now to revisit it, to engage her critiques a bit more, particularly as regards, she has a really thoughtful discussion about how scientific racism and religious racism almost like volleyed a ball back and forth between each other. Um, So scientific racism would kind of enact white supremacy in this way, the reaction to which, not to the scientific racism in particular, but to kind of science as as the master discourse. So then that in reaction to that would send people over to a certain understanding of religion, Christianity in particular, 
in the United States would send people over to religion, Christianity in the United States specifically, and then the anti-science posture would itself then also enable white supremacy. And so the relationship between scientific racism claiming to say like, oh, oh look, we can prove scientifically that that Europeans are superior. Unwitting co-conspirators. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think about, um, you know, like really toxic relationship dynamics and institutions where there's badness over here and there's badness over here. And then there's the interaction of the badness, which makes both badness worse, even though they're not intentionally cooperating. In fact, they're antagonistic. So I would love to talk more about that if there had been more time, um, but I can't do a better job than Kelly Brown Douglas does with it. So I think I'd just say, hey, y'all, read Kelly Brown Douglas. That's a nice plug. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't even pay me. She doesn't know who I am. But I know. <laughs> She's really good. Jordan, you got anything else? I'll just throw in there that racial capitalism would be yes. a, a great component to tease out of that talk. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a really good point. I always uh, feel a little bit daunted talking about capitalism because... Um, I don't know if you've found this. I have people in my life who tend to, in the name of nuance, shut down any critiques of capitalism because unless you can cite, you know, chapter and verse of economic theory and show the graph, you shouldn't critique it. And it's kind of spooked me. So I, I tend to sort of deflect it to people who that's their specialty, but um it occurs to me now in this conversation that maybe that's a cop-out and I should, you know, step up a bit more with that because that's a really good point, Jordan. I mean, the, the stuff... It's huge. It's a huge part of the story. The, I mean, the, the Calvinist stuff, right? The Protestant work ethics stuff yes. combined with colonialism and then the transatlantic slave trade, there's a through line there to mm-hmm. our current market capitalism. Right. You can't be sure if you're saved, so work, work, work okay, well, now we have to be productive. Oh, look, that means we have to kidnap and traffic people and put them into forced labor. Ah, but now I have wealth. Who are you to take it away from me? Freedom, freedom. Yeah, that's <laughs> very distilled. But yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, just to circle back to, to some of the comments you made um, about the God Seminar's uh, interest in indigenous wisdom. The other component to that lineage that you know we just sketched is is climate change yeah. and and kind of ecological yeah. concerns and of course uh, you know in North America the relationship to First Nations Native American people um, mm-hmm. is all wrapped up in, in all of that as well. I mean, it's impossibly large to talk about in in twenty minutes or you know a single podcast yeah. episode, but all that stuff is interrelated. Yeah, which makes it certainly daunting, even if you have 20 minutes, like, I'm just not going to talk about the development of capitalism and how, you know, you're sort of just assumed bourgeois values are an outgrowth of that. Um, So anyway, this was fun. It was. Oh, I just thought of another thing I'd talk about. Oh, go for it. All right. I just finished teaching a doctor of ministry class in the um, intercultural leadership track. And so I don't know if 
either of you have come across the work of uh, Betsy, I think it's Leondar Wright. Um, but she talks about class cultures. And so it's not an economic analysis of inequality, but she talks about culture that sort of coalesces around socioeconomic class and how each class culture actually has real assets that are a function of what it means to live with those material resources and to have to negotiate in the world in a certain way. Um, but she says, including professional middle-class culture, it too has assets. However, what professional middle-class culture tends to do is to see all other class cultures as nothing but deficits and its own class culture is having only strengths. So I think that's also a part of maybe not the intellectual history of liberal Protestant theology per se, but um, it's definitely a phenomenon that touches on that history in a lot of ways. And certainly today, you're just looking at churches, professional middle-class cultural assumptions, um, which are of course racialized as well. Um, they also show up in liberal Protestant churches and would be good for people who inhabit that cultural space to think more critically about and to contextualize a bit more. Sarah, thank you. Oh, thank you both so much. This was fun. Before we go, is there anything that you want to plug? Do you have like a Twitter handle or something? Or Oh, <laughs> I mean, I do, but I rarely tweet, so it's not worth finding. Let me think. Uh, no, I could sing one of my song parodies if you like. I think I think that would be okay. the most appropriate way to wind this down. Yeah. yeah we need All that. right. So this is a heresy tonight to the tune of a comedy tonight from a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I'll just sing the first verse because it can go along on a while. Right. Um, something Sabellian, something Hegelian, something for everyone, a heresy tonight. Manic eunuchs, bad hermeneutics, something for everyone, a heresy tonight. Nothing offends, blasphemes, or shocks, as long as you are heterodox. Nobody bothers with the church fathers, they're too doctrinally uptight. Meritas tomorrow, heresy tonight. Thank you. <laughs> that was great. I could see yeah, the whole sta the staging, the the sort of like um, I would pay I would pay money to go watch go see that on Broadway. So look for my one woman show, <laughs> off, off 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 Broadway, i.e. my office at Phillips Theological Seminary. I'm excited to hear more. Maybe like an AAR or something. Get oh yeah special session special a uh, session. karaoke session at AAR. <gasps> That'd be dope, actually. That'd be so awesome. Westar's pretty good at karaoke. I have to say, my favorite was watching um, Jack Caputo sing "Papa Don't Preach." Oh no! <laughs> Tell me, there's a video of that somewhere. I, I have photographs. I don't know if there's video, but I, I do have. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I, I don't think I don't think we can. There's nowhere to go uh, after what just happened. So thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you, Sarah. All right, <laughs> y'all. Have Thank a great you. day. You too. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Interrupted, the Westar Institute podcast. If you would like to learn more about the Westar Institute or become a member, visit westarinstitute.org. Interrupted is produced by Jordan Miller and Matthew Baker. We hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>